1: and welcome back to the new books in indian religions podcast a podcast channel here on the new books network i'm your host dr raj balkaran um more importantly i have the pleasure today of speaking with dr amelia Bakrak, who is assistant professor of religion and gender sexuality and feminist studies at Orwellin college we'll be speaking about a fascinating new OUP publication called religious reading and everyday lives in devotional hinduism amelia welcome to the podcast
0: Raj, it's great to be here. Thank you so much for taking the time. I I get so much from listening to and and actually teaching with interviews you do here. So it's really an honor to uh, share my research with with your audience. Uh,
1: the, the honor is ours. So listen, I, I I I'm in my little corner of the world in Midtown Toronto where I do everything and I speak into. A black box, uh, usually with a, a lovely, <laughs> lovely conversation partner such as yourself. And over the years, I've, it's just, um, it's a little surreal. The podcast is it's taken on a life of its own. Um, I've seen it listed on CVs. I've seen, I've seen it listed on reading uh, lists for, 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 for syllabi. It's fascinating. So but, but uh, t- tell me a little bit more about that. So do you send students to particular um, episodes or just, you know, do you just put on the radar or does that work for you?
0: Yeah, yeah, both. You know, it depends on, on what we're reading. And of course, you kind of, d- it's an unabated flow. So like I, I check my my email and there, there's a new set of books and I'm always working with students on research projects. Mm. Uh, so, so often it, it helps sort of, you know, it's 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 different than a book review, mm-hmm. as of course your listeners know. Um, and it really get kind of whets students' palates to, to read those books. And that's the point, that- right?
1: Yeah, that's great. and I think uh, I imagine for students in particular, I'm having this auto sort of experiment out loud in real time, but I imagine that for many students, connecting with the person behind the research is probably quite <laughs> useful for them. It humanizes it and they want to learn more. Um, uh, uh, the unabated flow, yes. <laughs> Four to six a month. Four to six a month is what she's referring to, I think.
0: And and I don't know how you do it. I don't know how you do it. Like you were just uh, overseas. You say you're in Toronto now, but I know you were in Croatia. So you uh, must record all over the world, really, uh, as you do your work.
1: Well, part of it is um, part of it is I may stockpile a couple. If I'm away for a couple weeks, I'll record a couple in advance. Um, but one of the great ironies is uh, I went to Croatia for this, this really nerdy, um, but uh, uh, it's, it's the most niche for my research. It's uh-huh. the Dubrovnik international conference on the Sanskrit epics and Puranas. So DICSEP for short, uh-huh. uh, but it's triennial um, th- three years ago, of course it was 2020. And so it was online for the first time. And so this is oh, the first time yes. going to Croatia. And one of the great ironies is they finished, they've literally published two or three conference proceedings just this year. Oh, and no the thing goodness. is, it works better if I wait till I come back to Toronto uh. and report on and report online where I'm set up for it. Of course. A, of it's, course. A, it's, a, it's hilarious. Um, and so I'll be having some some uh Dubrovnik proceedings covered shortly. But I have to tell you, I've been doing a theory of traveling. So I was like, okay, you know, I'll do this, I'll go and I'll go help promote a book that I co-edited with McComas Taylor and um, you know, here's some some fascinating research and and contribute as best I can. And I thought, okay, it's a work trip. I was like, okay, 10 days, I can do it, I'll be fine. And then, as soon as I landed, I'm like, oh my goodness, this is not, this is much more than a work trip. It is, it's magical there.
0: Yes, it's, it's a beautiful it's, place. Yeah, you know, Dubrovnik is a special place in my heart. My spouse's parents were married there, and I've only been once, but it is, as you say, it is, especially in late summer, it is, it's really beautiful.
1: And it's, and it's a number of, it's a number of dimensions. I mean, the old city is just, I mean, it's, it's everything, right? It's this mishmash of culture and mm-hmm, history. Mm-hmm, and just mm-hmm. the, the, for lack of a better word, the vastu of it, it's just so contained, and it feels, That's it right. feels good. And then you, a couple of times we were on the, on, on the Adriatic itself, uh, mm-hmm. there was an excursion day as part of the conference and, and you know, for whatever reason, like it's more than just in your mind, but being there is very different from on a boat on Lake Ontario. Oh, on yeah. tem- oh
0: yes. I love that. I'm on Lake Erie here in, um, the south it's, side it's of different. Cleveland, so it's, I hear it's you. It's probably
1: it different. different. Yeah. It's, Absolutely. It's I love that. Um, yeah. Um, yeah. I think we've yammered on enough about <laughs> our personal lives, but uh, but no, I love I love Dubrovnik, and, and and no, I don't have uh, Chaya Murtis, a nerdy Sanskrit <laughs> joke, which means like the Apple Gangers. I, I do all the podcasts myself, but I'll talk when I travel, yeah. um, so I can so I can so I can continue the unabated flow. Apparently, um, <laughs> more to the point of your research, um, yes. you ended up studying a particular community. Um, what did you study? What did you study for your work?
0: Yes. Um, well, I actually want to start with the sort of big picture of of, of the book, because I kind of want get, to get my listeners into that first before the community, which is, of course, central. And the big picture mm. of this book, as the title indicates, is uh, about religious reading, right, about the various ways that people engage affectively and Analytically with religious texts. And indeed, as a sort of case study, I look very specifically at modes of reading in a Hindu devotional community known as the Pushti Marg, right? And I argue that this community for this community, in the in this community, religious reading enables uh devotees to make centuries of tradition mesh with and to transform their contemporary worlds. But let me get into the weeds here. Uh Pushti Margis read and interpret many different texts, but my book really focuses on how they interpret a particular body of early modern hagiographies that have been integral to how they have developed or cultivated their community identity and devotional practices. And through prose accounts, about relationships between the Hindu deity Krishna, who was at the center of this, of this community's worship, and the Pushti Marg's early leaders and their disciples, these hagiographies, which are known as vartas, hagiographies, chronicles, they provide, well, a lot to community history, they provide theology, vicarious epiphany, uh, and models of devotional living. And even though the stories uh, from these texts are steeped in the social world of early modern north india, these these texts have really continued to be primary, really sort of guides for for devotional living for contemporary Pashti Margis today. And I can just keep on going, but I want to be intervened by your by your questions Raj. Well,
1: maybe you could tell us a little bit about how you got interested in this. How, what's the backstory of this project?
0: Yeah, that, that's a great question. Um, there are oh, gosh, I love a good origin story, and there are many for this particular uh, for this particular book. The first is let's see. When I studied as a, uh, a study abroad student with the University of Wisconsin Madison program in Benares and Varanasi, I was introduced uh, through a, a sort of undergraduate research project that had focused on Krishna bhakti, on Krishna devotional practices in that city. I was introduced to to one temple based community of this tradition, the Pushti Mark. Um, and then later, many years later, when I was embarking on graduate studies, I was studying Hindi, modern Hindi, in, uh, in Jaipur. And I was also interested as I was preparing for graduate work in uh, older forms of Hindi and the texts that I've just mentioned, the hagiographies, the the vartas of this community are indeed written in a form of Old Hindi. And fortuitously, one of the language primers I was looking at included selections of these texts as they are quite unique um, uh, examples of prose literature, actually, of the early modern period. Um, I got incredibly excited to return to looking at this community through this particular literary tradition. And then, in fact, you know, at the heart of my book is how people continue to to read and interpret these hagiographies in different contexts today. And I, in fact, was introduced by a Hindi language teacher on that program to a group of women at a temple in Jaipur who, indeed, were doing just that. Were, Were reading aloud these hagiographies in a group together and interpreting them. And that's how it began.
1: What are some of the ways um, in which these texts are read? Uh, so some examples of religious reading.
0: Yeah. So there are so many sort of sites that, that I go go into in, in, in the book. Uh, these, these sites of reading include both the sort of uh, public and performative contexts, uh, context, uh Very often I'm thinking of a particular genre called a pravachan, in which a religious leader or devotee will sort of uh, read aloud from or refer to these hagiographies and the body of literature with which they're associated, sort of larger canon of religious literature. Um, sort of read aloud from them and then sort of pause to to do exegesis, to unpack the meaning of these texts. And in the context of my work, um, I have noticed very, very often that those interpretations have to do with uh, bringing readers into the uh, these early modern stories in a way that uh, reflects contemporary concerns. Right. Very often about family relationships. Um, and other sort of contemporary social issues in in the community at large. Another site for reading these texts are slightly more sort of intimate and informal, though still ritualized contexts known as uh, satsang. Satsang is a term that's used across South Asian religious traditions to refer to i've translated this as gathering of the faithful you can get nerdy with me here dodge and think of other ways to to unpack that term yeah, sure <laughs>
1: faithful or perhaps literally truthful truthful, or there you go. Or tr- truthful company like like you and truthful, i right now
0: truthful company is actually so nice i like that right and it can be used casually, right? Like it was really great to have satsang with you, and uh, it is now as we as we are speaking, right? Um, so these kinds of gatherings happen both in temples, as do uh, these pravachans that I've mentioned uh, uh, previously, but also in people's private homes. They also can happen, and this I get into in particular in in one chapter of the book. They happen virtually. They happen through WhatsApp or FaceTime or I'm sure Zoom satsangs happen all the time. And very often in these more intimate settings, which can um, include folks from all different demographics, but in, in my research, often include only women. Um, people really get into the to the ways these hagiographies which tell about these intimate life stories of devotees of the past and their relationships with Krishna devotees really draw on these stories as conversation starters for their own devotional experiences in the in the modern context that they live in
1: and so do we have a sense that um the 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 the, the dynamism of of the reception of these achiographies has always been the case. Have they always been engaged in a, in a manner of contemporaneous with
0: right? The- That's such a fantastic question because it kind of gets at the heart of the text themselves. Um I, you know, before I answer that wonderful question, and the short answer is yes, is that I, I really one of the the sort of most important things about um, my methodology in this book is that I I want to look at uh, the relationality, the the relationship between texts and their readers, Um, because texts themselves as uh, the great uh, late South Asian literary scholar and, and poet, A. K. Ramanujan says, have ecologies of their own right they they tell us how to read them in certain ways and and they have a, there's a sort of grammar of tradition embedded in them but also as i've been articulating readers have bring their own social worlds into engagement with text so 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 one of the ways i can say yes without pausing too much in in response to your question that people have been engaging with these texts in dynamic uh ways over centuries namely since the 17th century the time we we expect they were committed to writing um, is that the texts themselves show the context of their own reading right the sort of embedded in the structure of these texts is this context of satsang so we see in the stories themselves which are which emerged i should say clearly from an oral Storytelling context, um, devotees sitting with each other, sitting with their religious leaders um, of this tradition, and talking about their devotional experiences with Krishna, and uh, learning about their community identities and practices. So yes, it's embedded in the text itself that one should be reading in a sort of conversational way.
1: Yeah, so there's certainly this 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 um, dialectic dimension, this this dialoguing that is uh embedded in the world within the text which which perhaps invites folks to be in conversation with the text itself as 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 time goes on yes would you say
0: absolutely yeah that's 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 precisely it and in the first chapter of my book i kind of get a little bit into the weeds the nerdy details of the the rhetorics uh the rhetor- rhetorical devices that that appear in some of these hagiographies um, including something that's, um, it almost doesn't seem as significant as, as I, now that I'm sort of thinking about how I, how I unpack it in the text. At at first, when I started reading these texts, I, I didn't quite hit me why this was so important, but, there is a lot of uh, recording of direct speech between Krishna himself, the deity, and his conversation partners, the the leaders and their disi- their disciples of this of this nascent community. Um, and but that record of direct speech, first of all, when you, when you read it aloud in these, or you I hear it read aloud in these contexts of satsangra and pravachan. Um, there's a sort of casual playfulness of it because you're reading direct speech that's not meant to be poetic or necessarily even beautiful. It's supposed to be sort of casual everyday speech. Uh, When you read this, It um, inspires discussion in a sort of automatic way. And there are other elements of these texts, including a, a particular kind of embedded commentary that provides a sort of fertile juncture for devotees to stop and ask questions because the commentator Um, himself does just that. He says, hey, reader, what do you think you're supposed to make of this story that was just recounted about such and such devotee and her relationship with Krishna, right? What are the messages we're supposed to take away? And while devotees and religious leaders themselves might actually disagree with or want to very carefully qualify and unpack those messages as they might be read verbatim from a a printed text. And I should note that many of the readers I am engaged with are are reading from printed texts. That kind of questioning and uh, careful unpacking and exegesis is part of how people become closer to their texts and Uh, Bring them into their worlds.
1: It seems that you have at hand an example, um, an example where it's a heightened, um, overt case of something that's probably implicit in in much, if not all, narrative: the relationship between narrative and pedagogy. The idea yes, that there's always a moral yes. of the story. There's all the, the narrative is always conveying some theme, some message, consciously, unconsciously, purposely, yeah. and and yet in in this context, it's taken to a whole new level. Where within mm-hmm. the story world it's, itself, it's like, what are we supposed to learn here, people?
0: I love that. That's yes, and I, I do try to connect that. That's so important, Raj. I do try to connect these modes of storytelling to to as you say, so many other modes. In and beyond this, the the context of South Asian religious literature, literary traditions, and and what, but one thing I sort of emphasize is that while on a sort of surface level, perhaps some of the stories in question might be a little bit they might come off as didactic insofar as some of them were formulaic. Many of the sort of devotees whose lives are featured in these hagiographies. Uh, They must first um, be initiated into this community by one of the the early leaders. They uh, are often bestowed with image, uh, a living image of Krishna aswarup that they then care for through these elaborate uh, rituals of loving care known as seva in their home. There's a sort of whole established way in which they go through their lives, even though we get some unique details about each of them. so there's some didacticism, right? We must be initiated, you must have these particular modes, but but really readers don't sort of take them as just that, right? They're not just didactic stories. They invite all of these debates and conversations, which really come alive in the context of, of satsang and um and another context of reading.
1: Yeah. Your book certainly describes modes of religious reading. Does it also from a scholarly perspective mm-hmm. prescribe? prescribed modes of religious reading or or, or tell us or, or, or sort of pause it or, or suggest how, <laughs> how we might read as scholars.
0: Yeah, I love that. I, and it, it it does. I think I, I'm 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 making an argument in a sense and not Maybe not just for scholars, but certainly um, my my book is is geared at a scholarly audience, an audience of of academic students and scholars, is that I want folks to think about, as I said before, uh, texts as as social, as part of people's social worlds, right? Uh, The inner dynamics of of particular texts, the ecologies of texts uh, can be mined. Uh, And I think so many, of course, uh, traditions of scholarship in in South Asia studies and religious studies think about, of course, the ways texts have been received and commentarial traditions. And I'm sort of building on those, uh, the ways people think about text reception to say, um, I really think that by studying the the context of of reading as much as texts themselves, we can learn, incredibly nuanced things about how those texts function in the first place for people. Uh, And one of the things that my book has emphasized is not only that texts reading, the context of reading allows people to kind of interpret ideals from the past in terms of the present. That's one part, but also about how the practice of reading itself, not just the sort of interpretation of these stories, but also just the act of reading alone, but especially in groups is, um, important to people's well-being and into how people uh um manage their and cultivate their relationships with family members and and at the center of of their lives also krishna yeah
1: what comes to mind is a couple of metaphors that i keep returning to with respect to religion and studying religion and religiosity and the metaphor of music and musicality and sheet music that the sheet mm. music There's a reading dimension that goes on, you know, when you're studying, et cetera, but that the sheet music comes to life when it's communally performed.
0: Oh, I love that. Yeah, that's 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 beautiful. And it's, I mean, in one sense, the first chapter of my book really tries to get into again that word, the ecology of these texts, mm. um, the sort of grammar of tradition. This is a, a, a term that Tony Stewart, scholar of um, a scholar who's looked at a, a similar religious community and their hagiographic literature, um, uh, grammar of tradition, he says, is sort of important to thinking about hagiography. Um, But in that first chapter, trying to sort of talk about how that grammar of tradition that is embedded in these texts, uh, that invites readers into sort of adopt modes of talking about themselves in relationship to Krishna, you know, based on these hagiographies, is a sort of li- living grammar r- grammar, right exactly that so people sort of become pushti margi in a sense through reading together in these in these somewhat prescribed ways but sort of once that grammar is learned it becomes it, it becomes dynamic it becomes as you say the sheet music is um it's there <laughs> and people are reading it but it becomes as dynamic as that musician and their instrument is i love that metaphor yeah that's nice
1: what do you and and um, we I'm sure we've touched on it in passing, but what do you most hope folks would take away three thousand foot view from this book?
0: Yeah, uh, and I, I have talked about this in, in 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 emphasizing already the 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 invitation to sort of merge text work with with field work. Um, and I should give credit to, to Linda Hess, who, who says says something similar in her book about performative traditions around the, the, the poet Kabir and uh, compositions attributed to, to him. But um, a, a term that I sort of develop in, in my book is a performative canon. Um, and uh, I invite people to think about Margi literature as part of a performative canon that is both these sort of written texts themselves, but also the modes through which people engage with these texts. And so if we think about these texts as part of a performative canon, sort of essentially, then we, we, we cannot ignore, for example, the nuances of how uh, people today in the Margi community um, have um, adapted their their modes of, Ritually serving Krishna in in what's called um, uh, Seva, sort of loving service of Krishna, which involves feeding the deity and clothing him and bathing him. And I can say more about that, Um, but how they have adapted that uh, to their contemporary lifestyles, even though Seva sort of emerges in a sense through these uh, early modern hagiographies. So performative canon, I think, is a a concept that will invite uh, folks who are students and scholars of text traditions to um, think about uh, modes of reading in everyday life as integral to the texts that people read themselves
1: mm. and one of the, one of the I mean that's great and one of the one of the themes uh, that I discern is this this um the, the fluidity this the, the fluidity of the textual tradition is a feature, not a bug, and so mm-hmm. um, with with Puranic studies proper, at least uh, in Western scholarship, you know, early yeah. Indological colonial scholars really saw the fluidity and the patchwork nature of the Puranas as a major bug. Because you know, what do we have as yes. comparison? The Vedas, who you know, this should have been strictly maintained, et cetera, et cetera, and, mm-hmm. and now we're we're really we're really understanding and celebrating the the extent to which the Puranic corpus and perhaps by extension, really any th- narrative corpus coming. Out of or stemmed in popular religion, uh, as, as as fluid by design. Yeah.
0: Mm, exactly i love that fluid by design right and i would say one of the terms that i keep coming back to in this text is sort of dialogical or conversational by design um and um i i see that certainly across so many text traditions but very much uh embedded in in the world of these Varta hagiographies of, of the pushthimar community
1: yeah was there anything about this research that surprised you
0: that's a something wonder- that was impressed upon question. you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, there's so many different stages. You know, I'm sure you see this in uh, interviewing scholars. Um, you know, this this is, as I say, I think in in the acknowledgments Acknowledgments of this book, it has had a long gestation period, it started, you know, as a PhD dissertation project. And as I said, origin stories go back to my undergraduate research. So I think things have surprised me at different stages along the way. But one thing that stands out, and I haven't sort of emphasized as much, is that especially as I sort of had a lens, uh, sort of emphasis, or I shouldn't say started out with one, but developed an emphasis on gendered practices of reading um, is that I was really concerned in part because of questions that other scholars would ask me, I was really concerned with sort of figuring out how women's practices of reading were maybe analytically distinct or stood out from, from men's in different ways. And there are some ways in which they might. But uh, what that kind of did in the in the process of doing fieldwork is it sometimes inhibited me from seeing other aspects of reading that were important, gendered or not. And one of those, which I have touched on, but I'll emphasize again here, is the sort of the ways in which reading uh, provides people with sort of physical and mental well-being. The actual process of sitting and reading, yes, these amazing discussions and debates emerge about people's lives and about tradition, but also people explain that their physical bodies are changed through reading and that that provides well-being. Uh, both for themselves and for their families by extension and also for krishna so that's something that i think surprised me a sort of reflexive moment of thinking about what the ethnographer wants to see and wants to find and then what um became uh, apparent beyond what i was perhaps looking for
1: yeah th- this is a theme that we we've touched on probably a number of times on the podcast but this idea of You know uh, our scholarly categories, and then you know I've I've joked a thousand times that if your categories don't change uh, when you're studying South Asia by virtue of the data, then you're not (laughs) studying South Asia properly. I love that. I love that. I
0: I should I should recite that to every every student in my classes. That's right. That's exactly right. Um,
1: it, but but then with respect to your the 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 particular um, mm. finding the, the phenomenon that this almost therapeutic dimension yeah. to reading this, this 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 extent to which uh, the texts and the engagement offer some some level of spiritual nourishment and and, and mm-hmm. feed people in a certain way that's that from what you're describing in your book and certainly in this conversation that seems indispensable to them that is above and beyond. Uh, a belief system that there's there's a certain homecoming when engaging these texts.
0: That's that's exactly right. Yeah, and again, it's and I talk about this especially in in a chapter in which I focus on women's practices of reading. Um, and I and I emphasize there, and I will again here. It's not to diminish the analytical quality of women's engagement with text, but it became especially clear that yes, reading provides this this space for. Um, for, for well-being and and I did, some of my interlocutors uh, speak primarily uh, Gujarati but also use a lot of English words and one of my conversation partners said in English it puts me in a meditative state you know reading puts me in a meditative state she happened to be a very uh, busy um, obstetrics and gynecology doctor who has a clinic on the bottom floor of her house and so part of her reading practices uh, engaging with these particular hagiographies um, include reading before she goes to work because it it does that. It puts her in a meditative state. Even though these are storytelling texts and again they inspire community dialogue, they function in a lot of different ways for different people. Yeah. Oh the the, the
1: power of narrative, the power of literature to my mind That's is to right. provide to provide um, um, um food for thought as well as soul food. Yeah. I mean they nourish yeah. us in different yes. ways.
0: yeah,
1: Um you you mentioned a couple of your chapters in passing why don't you give us the lay of the land and tell us how the book is structured.
0: Yes, I love that and and I and I you know as somebody who has thought about this the structure of these texts in um in their form as printed books, I I care about that question. I have an introduction which sort of of course lays out the the methodologies of the book and the four body chapters. there are four body chapters which I'll sort of um, talk through. I also have a brief conclusion. I have an appendix at the end of my book, which includes some uh, extended translations of the hagiographies that I discuss in the body chapters. I have a glossary of terms, a bibliography. I care about these things that I want to note them to, to listeners because I always note these things to my students, like use the whole book. Um, <laughs> but the four chapters are sort of organized both thematically and also chronologically. The first look at the as i've used this term before the distinct sort of textual ecology of varta texts varta literature varta sahitya as it's called in hindi and uh the modern history really beginning in the 19th the late 19th century of um pushy margi literature and reading practices. And then the following three chapters are sort of more specific to the ethnographic present uh, and I look at these various sites um and manners in which uh the modern readers uh, analyze devotional texts. So that's how the the, the book is organized. Yeah.
1: Fantastic. Is this work that you are continuing in some way?
0: I love I love that question. Uh I always, it always feels unfinished, (laughs) but I am also sort of um, have jumped into a a lot of different projects at once. One way I've kind of extended the project in a sense um, is that I'm writing, uh, working on a brief article that looks at one of the spaces in which these uh, hagiographies are read today, Uh, that is um, online platforms, including Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, I'm looking at how those uh, social media platforms actually function as important sites for the um, male religious leaders, uh, primary religious leaders, I should say, of this community, uh, sort of negotiate uh, masculinity and um, their Mm, their roles as family members. These are, these are, this is a householder tradition of religious leaders, and their roles as 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 Goswamis, as as gurus in the in the community. So how especially Instagram and Facebook become really interesting sites where that kind of uh gendered negotiation happens for men. Um, but I've also granted out to new projects. Am I allowed to talk about those, Raj?
1: You can talk about absolutely anything you'd like, <laughs> per- particularly scholarship, but more about what? Dubrovnik, your favorite food, oh, anything oh, really. Gosh. Um, oh, don't but get me but uh, but, uh, but, uh, but let's let's since we we since we've tantalized the audience, um, yeah, tell us what are these projects you're working on?
0: Yes. Um, well, it's, first, it's just, it's so funny because again, this book, long gestation period, and, and I just want to give it as much airtime as possible, um, but uh, I am excited about new projects. Uh, one is uh, based again in, in Gujarat and specifically Ahmedabad, which is the city where most of my ethnographic research for this religious reading and everyday lives book unfolded. And there I'm looking at how a group of Hindu women's, um, how Hindu women are cultivating piety through ascetic practices, particularly in a branch of uh, the Swaminarayan tradition, which is um, like the pushti marg led by a a sort of group of male hereditary leaders. And uh, this particular um, uh, branch of the tradition, indeed, led by Uh, the acharya, as he's called, is really in a sense co-led by his wife, uh, a woman named Gadiwala, or referred to, I should say, as Gadiwala. So I look at how uh, ascetic practices among a group of ascetic women in that particular branch of the tradition in Ahmedabad relate to uh, their guru, Gadiwala. I'm also working on a co authored source book on uh, women in Hindu traditions with my brilliant co authors, uh, Soheni Pillai and Jen Ortegrin. And this is a really fun book because we are bringing our own expertise to this very, it's proving incredibly exciting and also difficult to write a source book on this very broad topic. Uh, so that's been really, really fun. And then beautiful. Yeah, it going? it's beautiful. Yeah. I, I just can keep going, but I will stop. I know I know time is limited. No,
1: no, no here. I mean, no no. no. We're, I mean we're fish finish updating us. What else are you working on? That's yeah. a lot, but, but keep going. It's what a lot.
0: I know this is, and I, and I should say by way of uh, making a small correction to your introduction um, of me in the beginning, I am associate professor now, no longer assistant. So, so the feature well, of post-tenure um, research excitement is because of.
1: <laughs> well, because Mazel uh, tov. congratulations, associate professor. Thank you. <laughs>
0: thank you. The new project uh, takes me a bit farther afield to Barcelona, to Spain. And um, this project, ethnographic project, is looking at how newly relocated folks from South Asia, but particularly from Pakistan, um, uh, who work in and own frutarias and other retail stores are using commercial spaces to build religious communities. So this is a very nascent, newly developing project. um, But as you can tell, some of my other projects are more closely linked to the, the book I've talked about today.
1: Sure thing. And it's probably at various stages of gestation themselves. Well, without question, I know a guy who runs a podcast on Indian religions, So we'd happily have you back uh, <laughs> to talk about either of those projects. We've actually had so uh, Sony and just recently Jen on the podcast as well. So at some point, maybe yeah, we can do some, some brilliant conversation. You're all, you're all fascinating, dynamic scholars. So we can have you all, uh, you know, we'll have all four of us on a call and see what happens. Um, but yeah, that sounds like really fascinating work. Um, is there anything else about this particular project that you hope to be touch on? I know, I mean, I mean, I know that no one writes a book and feels like, oh yeah, I've done it. You know, if <laughs> anything, the best the best books are beginnings, right? And and everyone, you know, two years later, they're like, oh, I would do it like this and like this and like this, and you know, you know. But but is there anything any seminal to the project or the experience that you wanted to share?
0: Um. Well, I could say a few things. I mean, I've already argued that by studying texts uh, themselves and the social context of, of their reading, um, you know, this book kind of provides an example of how all these different sort of changing regional class gender identities in inform interpretations of religious texts and also Um, Then how those texts inform people's own projects of self-fashioning and community fashioning. But that really, uh, as I sort of gesture to in the conclusion of this book, this is my very subjective, yes, uh, well-researched, but subjective scholarly um, sort of experience with this community and, and the way that religious reading functions. And I... I, uh, I really am excited to see other folks. And I, and I have been in conversation with some graduate students, for instance, who are starting to look at uh, religious reading as a sort of category or subcategory in the field of religious studies. Um, so I'm excited to see that as an, as an emerging field. Yeah, and I look forward to mm. further conversations along those lines.
1: One of the projects on my 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 desk, my desktop, uh, virtual. Otherwise, you know, there's okay. They're the projects of scholar Raj. So, like, you know, translation of the Devi Mahatmya. You know, autograph of the Mahabharata. But I mean. The, the 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 general raj's desk right forget you know, one i of thought projects. i had
0: a lot of new projects but you're making me feel better about doing all the things
1: yes no 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 no, no. i mean to say one of the projects on yes. entrepreneurial raj uh, especially right. for the podcast is to find mm. some way or site whereby one can easily sort um you know mm-hmm. by by methodology for example you know they'll, they'll soon be at least the ones probably be over this but the ones that i've been involved in about 300 podcasts in the mm. area so oh ju- just just to click and be like gender studies click and ritual oh, click and subscribe yeah, studies yeah. click click pro- <laughs> reading projects click uh gujarat studies like i think we need to find a way to yes. really um to, to to organize by all of these fascinating subfields and that'll just entice folks it might even uh, inspire people interested in grad studies and thinking about topics et cetera, that's really et cetera, smart et
0: that's really smart
1: yeah um do you? I did this once or twice before, but I think I'm going to start uh-huh. this, new, this new initiative, um, particularly uh, for ethnographers uh, such okay. as yourself. Um, is there anything you want to ask? <laughs> I'm going to pass you the baton. <laughs>
0: What do you mean? To, to reiterate well, that. To clarify for well, me.
1: what I, what a <laughs> really. Um, I'm going to put both of us on the spot and ask: Is okay. there anything you want to ask me about oh, life, I get about it. Dubrovnik, about about will <laughs> oh, Pass the baton for oh, any one I, question.
0: I, oh, this is so <laughs> wow. Where do I? Know, I know, right? I mean, I know. I mean, I I think I already sort of got some answer to how how on earth it is that you do so many things. But then when I hear me recite. The sort of list of ongoing developing projects, I say, well, we can all do these things, but I guess I will. I mean, I I don't mind going back to Dubrovnik as I sort of lament the end of summer here. Um, how how as you sort of travel and do do work and have conversations in different places, do places themselves and Dubrovnik as an example sort of inspire you to think about your current projects in different ways? Like how it being in those places inspirational to how you read text one of the things that you do
1: yes um absolutely without question so there was there was there were there were a number of of melodies in the symphony of that trip Mm. but the two overarching themes was the scholarly theme of 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 epics and puranas and current research and engagement and that would have been fruitful and productive irrespective of where that took place whether it was a, a really cool workshop prior mm. to madison wisconsin mm. conference or uh, some kind of uh, sort of vestige of the american academy of religion conference etc yeah. that would have been its own thing and, and and that cross-pollination and meaning of the minds was great but without question the setting this circumstance mm. uh there's there's a bhavana there's something in the air of the mediterranean and particularly in dubrovnik and that will without question impact a mo- the mindset so the sort of collective way of being of that yes. culture will, without question impact you in ways that you couldn't begin to anticipate if you're open to being changed and soaking up the culture and so mm.
0: you
1: know i two of my two of my paper topics actually came just you know the conference started uh monday morning so people came in sunday and um actually landed friday spent a couple of days to get the lay of the land and then mm-hmm. sunday afternoon two seasoned scholar uh scholars of uh, pronic scholars greg bailey and macomas taylor we just chanced upon each other and and um you know had a drink sunday afternoon and three hours later i had two paper ideas yeah and those paper ideas were not a function of my current research Wow. they were a function of just some meaning of the minds where we're mm-hmm. both pulled out of the circuitry of our habituated space mm-hmm. into the space of yes. whatever that soil mm-hmm. or that air was offering. Mm-hmm. And it was great. So I think without question, the space that one is in literally uh, will impact this, you know, the space with which uh, one reads and in and and the, sort of the way of being, uh, I think without question, um, yeah. there's going to be an impact there. And I think that, Perhaps it can be said that certain settings and climates and cultures foster more openness, perhaps. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so one is certainly open on the Mediterranean mm-hmm. in August mm-hmm. in Dubrovnik. And one is open, <laughs> open to having a three hour lunch and probably, you know, wine's sure. not alcohol in, in, in the Mediterranean, apparently, you know, and so et cetera, et cetera. And so, um, yeah, yeah no, I know I found it. Uh, I, I made a Facebook post. Um, all of my friends and family complained that I never post stuff. So now I post, whenever I go on a trip, I take pictures just to just to avoid them complaining that I never take pictures when I'm away. So now I take pictures. <laughs> I've basically taken pictures of the entire conference now. Um, one of the things I said just when I landed is this experience has changed me mm-hmm. and more than just my scholarly sense mm-hmm. self. And I can't quite see it. I need a few days or a week to kind of see, let it settle. And I think oh, yeah. without question, the, the reader of the text being changed is necessarily going to impact the reading of the texts. Yes. That's
0: right. That's right. And I love that. That's a, that's a beautiful way to end it. And and in a sense, you know, the the writing of this book or any book, I mean, books take a long time to write. So we sort of have to marinate um, as scholars and writers in our own spaces uh, away from the, the, the place of our research in some cases, anyway, um, to sort of uh, figure out how, how we're analyzing and effectively engaging with the material. I, I love that. Yeah. And places matter. Place matters. Context matters for how we read. Yep.
1: Absolutely. Um, so thank you very much for appearing on the podcast today.
0: Thank you so much, Raj. It's been a pleasure to, to talk with you and learn with you.
1: Great. For those listening of course, we've been speaking with uh, Dr. Amelia Bachrock on a, uh, a new exciting uh, OEP publication, uh, Religious Reading in Everyday Lives and Devotion in Hinduism. Until next time, keep well, keep reading, keep listening, and not only read, but think about what it means to read. Bye for now.